and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm Nick, here with my co-hosts Percy. Hi. And Todd. Hello. And this week we have a special guest with us, James Ruth from the Quelmar Realm. That's me. Hi, James. Before we dive in, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your experience as a designer and a tabletop role-playing game player and kind of what you do? Sure, sure. Uh, I consider myself both a dungeon and a drama nerd, and I uh, I, I started the dungeon stuff uh, basically when I saw an episode of Dexter's Lab when I was a child, and uh, <laughs> it kicked me off on a lifelong journey that I would rediscover tabletop role-playing games in my late teens, and then it took over my life from there because I uh, I turned it into a a, a community facilitating experiment um, where I wound up finding that it's not just the game that was important, but the relationships and the friendships you make with new and old people along the way, strengthening old friendships, building new friendships, a.k.a. building a community. Uh, and so the Qualmar realm, as you had mentioned, is the community that I've I founded but I no longer really consider myself the owner of it's, it's more of a, a large group project now with uh, about 15 different game masters over the last eight years running. Uh, God, how knows? I, I don't even know how many campaigns, probably maybe 20 campaigns or so 80 or so one shots, um, a dozen game systems, uh, just a lot of nerds, uh, almost all of them theater nerds, all of them people I've picked up along the way in my theater career and brought together into this little incubation bin. And then as a as a drama nerd, I got started, you know, uh, playing the Scarecrow when I was a little kid. And then I went, oh, I want to do this. And so I followed that all the way to my performance BFA. Uh, shout out to Towson University. Uh, and then from there, I explored the world as an actor uh, in the DMV area. So uh, I did a few things in DC and in Maryland. I didn't do anything in Virginia. But uh, then uh covid 19 hit and i find my i find it hard to to label myself an actor at this point because we have entered this new era the 2020 era of virtual theater which is unfortunately uh pushing into 2021 now you know fingers crossed that this is the last year that everything is virtual but it's been an interesting experience moving into the digital scene and uh, i am so gracious that the team here at Dungeons Drominers has asked me to come on board and talk a little bit about digital theater and digital role-playing games, as the Qualmar Realm has been doing uh, online gaming for many years now, and many of the skills and things that, that we broke and learned how to fix are now translating over to theater companies who are breaking and fixing the process. So yeah, that's me. Awesome. Um, so as James said, we're here today to chat about the massive shift from in-person to virtual in TTRPGs and theater um, that we've all been doing this last year um, and using our recent games, both Qualmar Realms and our current campaign of Paranoia as a bit of a case study. Uh, I know that at Dungeons and Drama Nerds, we've been playing the Red Clearance um, version, and I believe y'all are playing second edition. Yeah, we're playing uh, we're playing XP, which is technically like fourth edition, oh, but okay. it is XP and XP and second edition are almost identical. Um, they there's very few differences. You can basically run a module from one of them exactly in the other system without changing anything. So, yeah, so we're playing we're playing old school uh, paranoia. and You guys are playing new school paranoia. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> um, and so one of the things that we found is in the red clearance um, 
they have these action cards um, that you're kind of like playing a card game when you're in combat um, and you have to like slap it down on the table, but it's hidden and you're kind of playing bullshit. You're kind of not. Um, and we found that this was like a tricky thing to try to translate to Zoom and doing this all, you know, remotely. Um, but stuff like the Secret Society and Mutant Power cards, we decided since that was something that like everyone was going to get and you were going to keep it a secret, we could just email those to people. And that was kind of part of our workaround um, with this. Are there any adaptations that y'all made to trying to play Paranoia remotely, oh, as it were? Yeah, I mean, Paranoia, If it's really funny. When, when the team uh, that I was recruiting decided Paranoia, I gave them like 15 different games and I said, which one do we want to play? And they said, this one looks fun. And that was the first time I'd looked at Paranoia. And I went, OK, let's see what other people are doing with Paranoia. And it's so hard to find any uh, live plays or or actual plays online of people playing Paranoia because it does not lend itself to the digital format very well, which makes it a great case study for for today. So in Paranoia, there's there's such a there's a high level of metagaming where people are just keeping these secrets from each other. And obviously the players all know these secrets are sort of open. But but the characters don't know. And uh, a lot of times the players are planning things together or apart, you know, backstabbing each other in various different ways. And in something like a podcast, you, you pretty much have everybody on a hot mic all the time sitting around talking. And so uh, one of the challenges we faced was how to get secret conversations and secret messages cross in such a way that people are able to keep secrets. Um, but most importantly, because the Quelmar Realm runs a Twitch channel, so we are a visual format, not necessarily a podcast format. Keep secrets while keeping the audience in the loop the whole time for everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, the biggest thing that we had to do was devise a system where we can basically kick people out of the room with the press of a button. And so once we kick them out, uh, it's very cute. We've got a little animation of these doors that close on their face. Um, and and they, they, they no longer can hear the game. And then the audience is staying and watching the whole time. They see people, you know, if we're doing one on ones, if just a few people are in a room and somebody's about to kill the other. And so that that seemed to work. We had to really program our own solution because this is not something that, that anybody has tried before. And it was a little scary getting into this and, and having to devise so many new uh, procedures and pipelines, technologies just for a game, an RPG. But uh, something something that I read a long time ago that always sort of stuck with me was the idea that uh, if you go into something knowing what to expect, then it's already been done before. So mm. going into this and being terrified and being like, oh, my God, we've got it. What are we going to do? Was exciting to me because that said, I've never seen anything like this. And uh, innovation is one of the things the Qualmar Realm loves to do. That's super fun. I hadn't in reading the the guidebooks, they definitely talk about like having one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations with everyone. And we did that a little bit, um, but we also uh, then devised some ways for one, like there's sequences where the player to your left is supposed to do something or the player to your right is supposed to do something as a, a different character from the, uh, from friend computer. Um, and we did that a little bit, but that was mostly like we did with our secret society 
um, cards, he would just like feed them some information and say like, this is your objective, pick a weird voice, do whatever you need to like try to accomplish this and let the other player make a choice. Um, and so I thought that that was a fun way to do this, but this way where you're both keeping your audience informed and keeping the player in the dark, um, sounds like thrilling in a way that you can't really do in tabletop unless you're like, please go leave the room and cover (laughs) your ears and we'll tell you when to come back, which sounds like less (laughs) dynamic. (laughs) Which people do do in tabletop games. There's a sort of, you know, old school tabletop mentality where people do that and are like, well, this, you know, this part of the story is only happening to this character and it might be a secret. So we want you to leave. In my home games, one of my favorite things to do when I DM is to make them play PvP Capture the Flag. Um, So I'll split them and put one group in the living room and one group in the dining room where we're playing. And obviously I would do break like I did breakout rooms and we did it a couple months ago. Um, But I'm I think that's a thing. I think for our game of Paranoia, we definitely, if I remember correctly, leaned a lot on just like other people in the room suspending disbelief and not metagaming like we were mm-hmm. just like your actors you can <laughs> you can pretend do it do it as if you did not hear um, all of the conversations that just happened um but i think it's interesting to preserve that for your players and actually have them in a situation where like they don't know what else has gone on um that's really cool yeah uh one thing one thing about old school paranoia compared to new school paranoia is that uh one of the first rules in the handbook for second edition and XP, uh, it lists, you know, the dungeon master or the game master's responsibilities. You know, you, you're you playing all the NPCs, you are the referee, you make the decisions. But then in the old version of Paranoia, it gives you an extra job. It says it is your job to keep the pressure on the players to not trust each other. And I haven't read the Red Clarence edition entirely, so I'm sure there's there's got to be something like that in there. I don't know if it's written out as clearly, but it is a pillar of old school paranoia is that as a game master, you are constantly under pressure to throw them at each other. So having them metagame and hearing hearing each other is one of those things that really softens the blow Mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to you suddenly. uh, So, for instance, in our our last episode, you know, two players were in an auto car that they ordered, not realizing that the auto car only has two seats. Um, so it gets there and they're like, shoot, there's only two seats. And half of them are grinning cheek to cheek, very excited about this opportunity. And half of them are terrified what this means. And of course, you know, two of them get in the auto car. It drives to the destination like a mechanical Uber. And then it drives back and the doors open and there's one body that just falls out of the seat. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and that's the the sort of thing where. I, I just have to tell the player, I'm like, I'm shutting you off now. And I press the button. They can't hear anything or know what's going on. And then when I bring them back five minutes later, uh, it's like, hey, you're a new clone now. And they're like, what happened? What happened in the car? What? And so they don't know if something attacked the car. They don't know if it was the other player. Spoiler alert, it was the other player, of course. Um, <laughs> but then it's the it's the job of everybody to keep up cover stories and try to either vouch for each other or stab each other. And that's something really fun about paranoia specifically. I think the attitude of our version was less like actively antagonistic and more like competitive, I think is, yes. is a good word for it. Um, Todd can speak to that probably better than I can, but. Yeah, I think we, we were a little less stabby stabby and a little more like, I'm going to get the most XP points, whatever those might be. And I'm going to do a sweet flip over this chasm to do it. But yeah, I think it it's 
it's just an interesting way to adapt those mechanics um, and to feel that tension. I would love to just uh, uh, just, you know, a little round of applause for uh, uh, Wallace Howitt and Dean, who did the Red Clarence edition. Um, they did something really special and awesome with it, which is you can almost tell that they looked at PvP RPGs and they were like, wow, this is really antithetical to everything that tabletops are. And they said, what what can we look at that is uh, more conventional and how do we fit paranoia into it? And it's it's board games, right? Mm-hmm. You sit down at a board game together and it's competitive. It's not, you know, backstabbing antagonistic. It's competitive and it's really fun to play. So, so much of the new Red Clearance Edition, including cards uh, and, and, you know, the points, the XP points, uh, it really feels pulled from the, the board game world and then thrown into this RPG, mm-hmm. which puts people in a different mindset. It doesn't put them in the the antagonistic mindset that the older versions of paranoia did it really puts them in a more collaborative but competitive mindset which i i love it's very different than old school paranoia they are two very different games in that regard but equally enjoyable i think yeah i think they both have these merits um and both pose challenges for adapting to the virtual scene like your cards well i was gonna say that is one of the challenges i think of especially the red clearance um paranoia is shifting it to this to the virtual realm and to the audio only realm um there's so many parts of it when i was reading through the rule book where i really was like oh this you know this would be challenging enough if i was playing it at home and i had purchased the pdf rather than you know buying the box set or whatever i'd have to print out all these cards and like you know whatever make these um and and i think that is an interesting kind of connection between tabletop games and theater right now in early 2021 is that we're all kind of trying to use these technologies that were designed mostly for other things to do the things that we can't anymore um but I was wondering what what tools so people have seen that help us play games together virtually, because there are the kind of obvious ones like um, Roll20 or other online tabletops. But I've also seen things like I don't remember what the name is, but there is an online website where you can play with a deck of cards in the same like room as other people, just a standard 52 card deck. So what other experiments have people been doing? I mean, um, I know with my game, like our home game, we like will sometimes bust out a like hand drawn battle map on a grid. Um, But very often we were playing theater of the mind. But since we're forced to do theater of the mind via Zoom theater, uh, like we didn't roll 20 wasn't quite the vibe for our group. Um, I found that I'm relying a lot on images more. And so I'm pulling images from the monster manual and I'm getting custom battle maps from Reddit and stuff like that to like have a thing that's focusing all of the players and keeping them engaged. Cause I feel like once you just have a laptop in front of you and not just like you're all sitting around a table and there's a bunch of dice in the middle. Um, I feel like people are, easily distracted more easily and you can just like open a tab in something else while a different scene is happening um and so i've tried to to center on a more like visual version of our tabletop experience in my home games 
I run a um, my home game is a West Marches campaign, which if you're unfamiliar, is essentially like a very sandboxy player driven game. And mine is very exploration focused. And they're like the whole premise of the campaign. And I will put spoilers in here because um, I know you fuckers are listening. Um, <laughs> but the, the whole premise of it is that they have this map from this secret organization um, in a world that is very anti like shared history and shared knowledge. So they're working to fill in the map together. And I made in Google Sheets um, uh, like a, a map that they can edit and add comments to. And they have like an adventure log that they edit together. I, it is a dramaturg's wet dream. Um, it's just a Google Drive folder full of treats um, that everybody <laughs> collaboratively edits because we're all big nerds. Um, and then I'll do battle maps also on Google Sheets because it helps a lot to like have a thing to look at, especially because... D&D is so focused on combat and tactics and stuff that I like being able to like actually engage with, okay, are you 30 feet away or are you 40 feet away and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, my, my solution is uh, to spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah, we, we had a game master earlier this year run a whole game through PowerPoint. That's so cool. Um, so that was really brilliant, I think, on his end, because uh, it's just like the Google Sheets, especially if you're using Google Google presentation, whatever it's called. Um, it, and it lets you control what everybody is seeing all at the same time. And if you're not running it in slideshow mode, then all of the elements can be moved around like tokens on a battle map. So it was great because if there needed to be like images, representations, just like Todd's saying, he would go to the next slide and it's just a big picture of a monster. Here's what just appears, you know, next slide. Now it's a battle map again. Um, and so. So, yeah, so I think you're right. Google Sheets, PowerPoint, all of these strange tools of the office are now the battlefields yeah because i don't have the emotional wherewithal to build dwarven forge terrain <laughs> and paint minis james you it looked like uh on for for the qualmar realms paranoia you're using some actual like physical minis and uh <laughs> objects yeah. and stuff as well i i it looks i mean given the nature of the game that's not quite on the like one inch equals five feet type of scale, but I liked the visual reference point. Yeah, for for paranoia, definitely, because it's it doesn't have a battle map or anything like that. I've, I leaned heavily into suggestive imagery, so I would create all sorts of little pieces of terrain or minis or things to help people get an idea of what it looks like in a room um, or how many people are in the room. You know, is there a table? Mm -hmm. Is there a TV? Is there a whatever? But I but it's very different than the D&D campaign. We were on the same channel six months earlier uh, for that campaign, we had to have, you know, a downwards facing camera six feet in the air um, so that you could get sort of a orthographic look of every square on the board. Um, I don't know why I don't just use <laughs> roll 20 or foundry or something. Uh, I guess I just I don't know that I've got their game masters in Qualmar who do use those tools. Uh, I think they're incredibly useful and easy to pick up if if you're willing to use, you know, go through the learning curve. I've I like physical things. I like toys. Mm -hmm. I like tiny pieces and plastic dice. And I mean, I literally, uh, have my dragon I, mini on my desk. <laughs> toys are really fun. Awesome. Um, yeah, exactly. So for paranoia, that's what we use. Our tool is cameras. I've got three or four cameras around the table. We switch between them. Um, one of them's on one of these nice, you know, like a, a microphone arm so that I can pull it really close to the table really like on the ground where mm. I can pull it up and get sort of an aerial view with paranoia. It's extra special because most of the cameras have an overlay that makes it look like it's recording and there's film grain imposed on it. 
So it's the computer is always watching. Um, so it adds a little extra special treat. And every once in a while, the players will go to do something and they don't realize that they've been filmed doing it. And I'll bring it up. Oh, the computer saw you do this. And they're like, but the computer wasn't there. I just be like, here is the video footage of the computer recording that moment. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I but, feel like uh, paranoia lends itself really well to digital in some in some way. Like in some ways, it is really really hard to do it as written. But um, there's so many cool ways to incorporate technology and cameras and film and um, just like general internet culture that I think is really exciting and fun. Um, and I know we played with that a little bit um, less in terms of like incorporating film, obviously, but. <laughs> But especially Red Clearance Edition, right? Like the, the whole book is just written like it comes out of the Internet. Oh, yes. <laughs> which is which is funny because the Internet barely existed when Paranoia, <laughs> like when Paranoia was first written back in the early yeah. 80s, I think it was. Yep. yep. It's evolved quite a bit. So I, I applause to you guys for adapting Red Clearance in that regard. Um, I was going to mention before uh, when I was talking about board games, board game podcasts basically non-existent you know dice tower is the biggest one out there and they don't even play board games they just talk about it and review them so being able to adapt such a board game influenced version of paranoia and making it work in a podcast not even a video cast a podcast is pretty incredible thank you um thinking about what you what you were talking about with cameras um james i puts me in mind a lot of some of the different innovations theater companies and theater artists have made in this time as well, because I think at this point, probably everyone or almost everyone who listens to our podcast has seen Zoom theater in some way, even if it was on Google Hangouts and not on Zoom. Um, so we we're all familiar with that, but then the, we've also seen a lot of kind of cinematic theater. I'm thinking of work like Fake Friends Circle Jerk that I know used I don't even remember like eight cameras or like something. Thirteen cameras. Was it thirteen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they they had the budget to get what's called a PTZ camera, which is my dream. In the perfect world, Chromar would have PTZ cameras because those are cameras that are remote controlled. They have pan, tilt, and zoom PTZ. And so from anywhere in the world, you can frame the camera exactly where you want it to look at. And that's ultimately what online theater is about, is creating the canvas that you want everybody to look at. And a PTZ camera gives you such fine control over that. And I think and you're right. They, I think they used like a half a dozen of those in Circle Jerk. Couldn't have been cheap. <laughs> I think something that's interesting about watching theaters adapt digitally is that like the first couple things in like March um, for a lot of theaters were like, we have a single camera. We're going to set it up at the back of the house and we're going to film it. And it's going to look really boring because that's not how people's eyes work, but we don't understand or we're not thinking about using more than one camera. And like the thought of editing, it makes it feel more cinematic. And so that feels weird. Um, but I think very quickly, um, people have adapted to like, no, you have a wide shot and then you do close ups. And like, if we need to do another take, we do another take and it'll look good and that's fine. And like we did it live, but also it's kind of a movie now and that's fine, too. Um, We're OK with doing work to make it look good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I think, I think we've had to relax our understanding of what theater means. And I think that's good, actually, uh, mm. for us as an industry moving forward to be a little bit less strict about what like qualifies as theater. And it's been really interesting to see people because I think even like when we started doing theater over Zoom, there was a lot of just like there's people and they're in frames and we're doing a reading of a play um, and maybe they're wearing like a fun shirt. But then uh, I spent the summer working on the Digital Renaissance Project with Jared Mazzacci. And we, he, um, he Wait, really with Jared loves... Mazzacci. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I work with oh, Jared Mazzacci. Cool, yeah. Of course. Oh, Jared. Jared's awesome. Yeah, he's the best. Um, he plays a lot with Isadora, which is a, um, a software that a lot of projections and multimedia designers use. Um, and in Isadora, if you, I don't fully understand how it works, to be completely honest, because he, knows more about it than I do. Um, but you can do all of these different filters and effects. You can put one person's video feed into another person's square. Like you can do all of these really, really cool things. You can do video backgrounds um, and it ends up being really cinematic, but it's also a way to kind of break the Zoom format and play with our expectations of what that experience is going to be. Um, I think there's a lot of ways that people are finding to like subvert expectations when you're entering a zoom space to watch a theater performance well and it speaks to the rigidity which i find frustrating of the zoom format that we just started doing this in like march and already people are even by the summer people were like we must break this format it, <laughs> is, it is intolerable to continue doing the same thing and yet we keep every doing show and yeah, we keep doing kitchen it. sink dramas. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's <laughs> well, a whole other conversation. <laughs> well, and I'm also thinking of like, and I don't think I've seen anybody try to do something like this live. And it was clearly me digitally, but I feel like I haven't seen a lot of theater practitioners do this. Um, Tao and the Get Down Stay Down um, is this their uh, musical act. Um, and they have this really awesome song called Phenom. And it's set in a Zoom call. Um, but then they're like dancers using the fact that they're in a three by three grid to their advantage and saying like, OK, I'll do this and it'll mean this happens on your screen and this happens on your screen. And they like tilt their camera sideways and it looks like they're falling and they do like all of these very cool things, noting that like this is how the restricted image will then appear on this. So how do we mess with that? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really fascinating. And I feel like I haven't seen a lot of people doing that. I feel like I've seen more people doing like the OBS overlays and making it look less like Zoom, which is totally cool. Um, but I'm wondering, like, are there ways to break Zoom theater in a way that makes it exciting? And it sounds like um, y'all were doing this, Percy. Credit to Zoom. They've they've heard some of the complaints that the artistic community has thrown at them over the past year. So. We can rearrange boxes now. Uh, we can turn off name tags permanently. Uh, we can. Uh, there's a music mode under your audio settings now, high fidelity music mode, uh, which doubles the audio bit rate uh, and allows music to sound like music. <laughs> everybody, everybody can think back to March and April when everything musical through Zoom was just so crunched and ugly. You couldn't play guitar. You couldn't play anything. It was. I think my favorite was uh, when people found out that you can't do anything in unison uh, <laughs> over the internet. That, well, that's Zoom's biggest problem now. Still, even right now, the auto gain on Zoom is going to be its biggest hurdle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, James, what your experience has been as you've shifted into more of like a producing broadcast engineer type, like what things you've experimented with personally. 
Yeah. Um, so uh, like everybody is talking about back in March and April, it was all Zoom stuff. It was doing shows in Zoom and then it was doing shows in Zoom and then taking that and putting it on a broadcast like an OBS overlay like you're talking about. And then at a certain point around the summer, I taught myself a lot more of of actual broadcasting protocols, things like NDI, STR, uh, that are these these ways that video feeds are sent over the internet in the industry, professional broadcasting, so to say. And once I had learned these new tools, I was able to approach work a little differently so that, for instance, I could grab two people's feeds directly from their house at the same time and put them together and we could hear them at the same time. We wouldn't have that auto gain problem where somebody talks and you can't hear the other person. And so uh, moving to actual tools outside of Zoom, moving to actual broadcasting and pulling feeds directly from performers and talent changed the game a lot. And even now, uh, here in January, when we're recording, uh, that's that's the go to thing is to pull NDI feeds or STR feeds of performers uh, and then output those in vMix or OBS or whatever sort of broadcasting solution you're using. Um, because uh, one, if you didn't realize, Zoom will auto reduce the quality of a video feed depending on how many people are on screen. And if you want high resolution feeds of everybody at the same time, you can't do it through Zoom. Um, and if you want everybody's audio at the same time, you can't do it through Zoom. So Zoom theater is now sort of reserved for very special cases. Um, one of those cases being when you want audience high amounts of audience interaction, because you can actually get people in the room where it happens. If you're in Zoom, the Zoom where it happens, I think someone in Hamilton said months ago in some fundraising event. Um, <laughs> so, so Zoom still has a place in the digital theater world for sure. Um, but a lot of uh, places, universities and professional theaters, and even some community theaters I've seen are moving more and more away from Zoom at this point. Um, whether it's the cinematic theater, like mentioned earlier, where it's we use, I mean, uh, taking it back to RPGs, you know, what I'm doing with Paranoia is cinematic theater. We're playing the RPG, but I've got three or four cameras and I switch between them live. And and so it is this idea that it is live at the table, but it's being formatted and controlled like a movie. That's one one thing that that we're seeing more of and more of. Uh, the other big problem, I would say, is. And something that I have worked very hard to with several teams in this past year, and no doubt other teams across the country are working on too, uh, is that American theater at every single level is just infiltrated by the musical. And, and that's the, the episode musical, title. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is infiltrated by the musical. And the problem with the musical is that there are physical limits to this universe that prevent musicals from happening online easily. Solutions have been worked out. Um, I'm very proud to be a member of several teams that have put on operas live synchronously, multiple singers singing at the same time, in real time, with each other. That's probably the proudest thing I've helped put together in, in the whole pandemic is, is live opera. But, uh, but that's the problem is because it's a very high technical challenge, very difficult to put piece together. Uh, at that level, uh, we're seeing a lot of pre-recorded stuff, like you're saying. So much, so much of theater has turned into film. And I'm going to piss off some people here in a second with this uh, hashtag hot take. I don't consider anything pre-recorded to be theater. Um, because one of my staples is that theater is happening live as you see it in that 
Um, that tension in the air that anything could go wrong at that moment is one of the things that helps make theater theater. Uh, and with something pre-recorded like this podcast, everything that doesn't go right can be cut. Mm-hmm. Um, don't cut that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it's, it's, that's my personal idea. Obviously, a, a lot of people share it. A lot of people don't share it. I think what I'm seeing is that people are getting really hung. And this is like my hashtag hot take. Uh, I think people are getting really hung up on what is and isn't theater when in reality, like I think we can just be making art that will deepen our practice no matter what it technically is, because like to a certain extent, my capacity for absorbing synchronous content is a lot lower than it used to be just because like, I don't remember how to have a schedule and be a person anymore. Um, yeah. And to a certain extent, like it is kind of nice to not have to, like I can absorb something at a specific time and I don't necessarily care right now, whether or not that is technically theater. And that's what I see people getting hung up on, but I, yeah. I mean, it's also just, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's just such a like late capitalist hellhole thing of like, (laughs) why do we still have to be producing theater? Like just do a thing that will allow, you know, create a thing and offer it to people for money because there's a global pandemic and like, (laughs) you're going to do what you can to continue providing your service. But like not everything that a theater artist has to do like does to survive has to be capital T theater mm-hmm. and that's fine. <laughs> well, and I also think like I've had such a hard time. I feel like there's a number of theaters all over the country that have been trying to do this. Like we're going to be doing it live. It's going to be streamed every single night and it's at seven o'clock. And I'm like, I don't want to turn on my computer again at seven o'clock. I want to do another, like, I would happily go to a theater at seven o'clock if it were safe to do so. And like, I don't think anybody should be doing theater in person right now. But I, I like absolutely don't want to like go up to my room where it's quiet after dinner and like turn on my computer and stare at my screen when I could be sitting on my couch playing a video game or watching Netflix or something like that. But I would happily watch your play that you recorded at like 2 p.m on my terms <laughs> like <laughs> i have such a hard time being like oh right that's only running for three weeks and i need to watch it at a specific time of day is hard for me yeah like i i feel like if you're going to like i'm vacillating very widely between either like give it to me pre-recorded and i will watch these very talented people who do theater do what is probably closer to film or make it so participatory and so necessary that it is synchronous that I have to be there and then I'm into it. Yes. Um, yes. Then I'm here for it. Cause even like I did a, I did a show at my university in the fall. We produced, um, Nick very kindly attended it. We produced, um, we made a coven of witches and we did a witch, we did a ritual for Samhain and it was very fun. I don't know that I would call it theater, um, but it was deeply participatory. Um, and like we used breakout rooms and we did all of all of these things and we were sort of just like, okay, this is what we're doing and we're going to accept that this is the reality of doing it over Zoom. It was really lovely. Um, but yeah, I want I want it to be either like so not participatory that I can watch it whenever I want or so participatory that like I understand why I have to be here at 7 p.m. 
I was just going to ask you, James, you have some uh, audience participation built into Qualmar Realms, if I remember, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. That was one of the things when I went into this project that I wanted to heighten, which was based on my it's so it's funny. My work in creating the first campaign and learning all of these tools, OBS and, and how to create a broadcast, then translated in March to the theater world. And then all of my work with these companies in the theater world translated back to Paranoia. And I learned, just like uh, Percy was saying, how much audience participation made things feel like theater to me. So, for instance, in these operas, they were very beautiful and they were live and it was crazy that they're live. um, But we're not hearing people applause. We would pipe in applause at certain points at the end of the show, like when the, the curtain calls were. But it doesn't feel live. It doesn't feel like theater. But then we would do a talk back in the audience uh, uh, and we could have a chance to watch the chat and see all of the audience reactions at the end of the show, knowing that they either got questions or they just want to say good job or they just want to say that's amazing. And then some of them would either pop up in Zoom and talk or if we're on YouTube or Vimeo, they would just, you know, chat it and come up. And and that part felt more like theater to me than ever, because you look at the performers and they're sweating from head to toe and they're just standing in front of their cameras in their bedrooms, exhausted. Uh, you know, and the dramaturgs leading this this uh, Q and A, and the audience members are trying are being really passionate. Like that was beautiful. Thank you so much. This is what it meant to me, and that part felt like theater to me more than four people singing in real time. The technological mm-hmm. part was amazing, but that's not what made it theater. What made it theater ultimately was when the audience was participatory, and I could go to bed at night feeling like I made theater because of those moments. So turning it back to paranoia, what I learned from all of that was how do I make Paranoia more participatory? Uh, and luckily, Twitch is basically a platform for audience participation, not not just the chat, which all of them have. Um, but Twitch, uh, you probably know if you've watched anything on Twitch that is gaming related, uh, has uh, rewards that the audience claims. Channel points is what they're called. Uh, and so as you watch, you build these points up naturally over time. You watch for an hour, you get 100 points or so. And then you can turn those points and press a button and it does something to the stream. You literally physically interact with the stream in some way. And you can set that up however you want uh, from the streamer side of things. In our game, Old Paranoia has a system called Perversity Points, which doesn't have a direct thing in New Paranoia. New Paranoia has, uh, I guess, Moxie maybe is the closest thing. It's just a pool of points that the players have that they that they lose and they gain over the course Mm -hmm. of the game. Uh, in old school paranoia, perversity points are dice modifiers. They're not l- quite hit points. So you would use your perversity points on your dice roll. I rolled a 17. I'm going to spend five points and make that a 22. And so one thing that the audience can do is dish out these points little by little to the players as they play. And we have a little bleep that pops up on the screen. So what happens is that, you know, our player Miguel and, and one session, an older session, so I can spoil this, uh, had. Uh, he had a, a rigged laser pistol that was going to blow up and destroy everyone in the room. We're working like a plasma generator. Um, and he set it off at the end of the session as they're getting the debriefing because his job, his secret society mission was to kill the debriefing officer. And he said, no time like the present. We're in the debriefing chamber. I can t- take out the debriefing officer and all of the other players. And then I can just turn around to the computer and be like, they were all traitors and try to get you know, the, the, the credit for taking out all of these commie traders of the op complex. And so he did that. And you can go back and watch. I think this is episode three. Um, if you watch it, 
as soon as he blows up the room, his thing goes crazy. Ding, 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 ding. The audience eats it up because they're here to watch the PvP and the backstabbing. It's like watching Game of Thrones. They love uh, watching the players plan these things in secret. And then when it when it kicks off and he's freaking out, Miguel is so happy. And, and all of the other players are furious. They can see how much the audience is applauding his action to kill everyone. And that makes them, you know, <laughs> even more upset with what he's done, which only feeds into the the, the aggression of the paranoia playstyle. But but that was one of the things that I really wanted to do was give every single audience member a chance to applaud. And that's what the perversity points are, is you you can't do it once you join because you have to gain those points. So after you've watched for a half hour or so, you sort of get the right to applaud. And that's just something with Twitch that I can't unfortunately control. I would love for everybody and anyone to come in to be able to applaud. I mean, in real theater, everybody should have the right to applaud. I will fight for our right to applaud. No, and- late seaters get nothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but that's interesting. I find, like, I've seen a number of theaters um, doing things on Zoom versus doing things on Twitch. And I feel like so many, like, theater forward audiences have no idea what to do with the chat. And are so like they don't want to talk or like type in the chat because it feels like interrupting the show. And I think that that's a really interesting whereas like I come from a very theater background, but also a very gamer background. And so I'm like, yeah, let's mix it up in this chat. Or like there was a there was a show that I went to that had tweet seats and you were allowed to like take pictures of the show and tweet it. And then that would be like projected onto the show. It was a very fun, like weird thing. But I wound up being like the only person doing this in the audience at the show that I went to. And then I was like, well, I don't want to do it. That Like, I don't want it to just be my tweets that are like popping up here. Like I'm tagged in it. Like what? Like if other people want to play along. Um, and so I found that I like phased out. But if I were in a more theatery, twitchy, internet-y audience, I feel like more people would have played along and we all would have done it much longer, you know? Yeah, well, it's it's nice when you're attending a show and the pre-show playlist slaps and you can write in the chat, this playlist slaps. Um, mm-hmm. You can all talk about how much you love Kate Bush. Um, I'm not. Ju- this is a thing that happened. Oh, no, Whatever. I'm sure this exactly <laughs> happened in this order. I know, you, know you very well. Like Kate Bush. Um, <laughs> yeah, like it's I, I feel like that's a thing that I, like we can evolve also as audience members and we can embrace like one of the cool things about digital platforms is that you can be having a whole conversation and engaging with other audience members in a really deep, immediate way. And at the same time, you can be watching something. And because it's on your computer, I feel a lot better equipped to do those two things at the same time. Um, like I was watching a, a Zoom stream um, called Camp Strangewood that a playwright friend of mine uh, produced. Um, and it was really cool because it's like a horror, creepy, scary thing. And it was really cool in real time to watch people responding to it and be like, oh, no, I don't trust that character at all. Don't go in the closet. Like, what's what's happening? Um, and also shouting out the artists and being like, this comp- composition is really, really good. And like all of these things. So it's really I don't know. I love I love that. But you're right that people, I think, don't know how to encounter that if they don't come from some other community where that is normal. Well, and it feels I think there is obviously for some people a just like technical proficiency barrier, um, which is very valid, you know, especially people I'm in grad school. So I'm on Zoom like 
all the fucking time. Um, but for people who for whom that's not the way that they're living their lives right now, um, you know, they're maybe not as familiar with the interface. But it does also in some ways feel weirdly to me like the divide between like, you know, theater must be silent audiences and theater is a like place of community audiences in actual embodied theater where you have those you know audience members who like don't want to make any noise at all in a theater and sometimes don't want anybody else making any noise at all either i don't i'm not saying it's a one-to-one connection or anything like that but it does feel watching a zoom piece where there or any honestly online piece where there's no like sense of the other people watching it to me feels very empty i like having that sense of community that there are other people going through the same thing i am there was one company that was talking about this but i can't imagine this being anything but distracting but they do they invite all of the audience into the zoom room like it's not a webinar and you all turn your cameras off but you leave your mics on so you can hear the like communal gasps and stuff but i feel like given zoom's audio problems that that like interrupts the show a little bit um, but I can imagine a world where it doesn't. And that's cool to be like, oh, yeah, there are like 30 other people watching this right now with me. And that's fun. Well, I think flipping this on its head a little bit. The other thing that I've noticed is a lot of um, companies who are embracing completely other mediums. Like there's a lot of phone call theater and that's really intimate and cool, like theater for one person, because there's um, there's a show in D.C. where they do one on one tarot. Uh, it's by a company called the Arcanists, I believe. And it's very, very cool. And that was always like a cool, intimate theater experience. Um, and that's a thing I'm excited to see people exploring more is theater one on one. Um, even though I don't like talking on the phone. <laughs> I also <laughs> yeah. did see I've really enjoyed I, I enjoyed and also felt kind of empty, emptied out by this piece called Temping that Wolf 359 did in New York where there were no live performers. It was just me and an environment which felt very like gamey while also being theater. Um, you can find reviews and pieces about it online, but it's, it was a really fascinating piece that fit very well into the COVID era because I didn't interact with any other human being directly, even though there were human beings, you know, making things happen out of my sight. And sort of a combination of the two of those. Uh, there's also a couple of theaters now. The first I heard of was the Acme Company um, and based out of Baltimore did the Institute of Counterfeit Memory, which was a box you got in the mail from them. And when you opened it up, it had all of these things, lights and fake snow and plastic baggies and pictures and like photographs. and uh, like like the kind you hold up to the sun and you can sort of see. Uh, and you're like, what what is this? Is this is supposed to be a play. And then it came with a tiny iPod shuffle and a pair of headphones and you pop it in and there's an instructor who tells you how to do the play on your dining room table using all of the things they've given you. And so you are just putting the show on for yourself, following the instructions while actors are actually performing lines and you're sitting there looking at this scene you've pieced together. Uh, and the whole conceit was that you had seen a play, but you forgot all about it. So the Institute of Counterfeit Memory is going to put those memories back in your head by 
jogging your memory. And by the end of the show, it all finishes. You do this fake blackout effect. It asks you to turn out all the lights in your room and you put it all away. And then you, you sit there and you're like, did I see a show? Did I just see a show? Did I see a show before? <laughs> it's, <laughs> so cool. uh, it's fantastic. Um, so that is, again, the Institute of Counterfeit Memory, a play in a box. Nice. Yeah, and I know people have been doing plays like in Sims 4, like there was the Sims 4, the seagull, the seagull, the seagull, which is, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, finding new environments and new um, delivery systems using like things that we already have in our day-to-day lives, but don't necessarily associate with theatrical storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the Stellatio Virtual Theater um, and Final Fantasy XIV, which takes its name from the fake theater troupe, in, well, where the fake theater troupe winds up um, in Final Fantasy IX. And they actually performed this like fake Shakespeare, I Want to Be Your Canary by Lord Avon, um, which is unique to this play, Final this play that happens in Final Fantasy IX that they then recreated in an MMO um, just because they could. And it's very cool. It's like a weird trip to see, but also like a lot of theater nerdery and like old school video games nerdery all wrapped in one. It's so weird because they they, uh, they type it in chat. So they're mm-hmm. they're acting it out in front of you, but you're reading the chat as all of the actors are typing the lines out live. It's just so definitely check out videos. Uh, Salasio, it's so so good. That's so cool. Um, I feel like a good last sort of stop on our exploration of theater in the time of the pandemic is theater that's been doing done via via podcast because I think that's interesting. I think this has been a really good time for new work development because Zoom is really good for just like reading a play out loud. Um, but I know Todd has been doing a lot of that, so I'll pass it to him. Oh yeah, I mean that's just I think. A lot of people were very frustrated with Zoom theater, um, even very early in the pandemic. And I'm like, it's a staged reading. That's what we're like. Yeah, there's no sets. There's no motion. It's just like people standing in their squares at music stands and they're going to read you a play. Yeah, stop firing your literary managers (laughs) and (laughs) produce more new work. Produce more new work. Um, And so Portland Stage, where I work, has been doing a lot of that. We shifted our New Works Festival entirely online. But as a result, because like normally we do three shows in a week. Um, and you like come and you just, there's like a marathon day. And instead we're like, oh, what if we just like spend a week on each show? Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> Instead of like a day and a half on each show piled on top of each other. Um, and it allowed us to explore these works a lot more. But also we reached like a much wider audience than we ever do in our black box, which was great. And we got to work with actors that we like normally couldn't bring in from new york who would be like i'm not gonna come to portland for a week for that amount of money but i'll turn on my laptop for it um (laughs) you know and so like april mathis worked with us and a bunch of like really really cool artists that i have crushes on um that were like hell yeah i'll do that for you that's i mean you're right uh that's like the benefit of this new virtual era is working with other people and other companies that you would have never had the chance to geographically in your life. I mean, uh, <laughs> right now I've got one foot in Princeton and the other foot in UCLA. I'm literally doing two shows this week on opposite sides of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you can't you wouldn't be able to do that with conventional theater. I mean, plane tickets alone. 
you know, having to fly back and forth. But with the new era we're in, the new frontier, so many people are meeting theater artists that they might have never gotten to know in their life this way. Well, and I think it's so much more accessible, um, even as we're still ironing out like things like transcription and captioning and stuff like that. Like, I think at a baseline level, um, especially work that can be absorbed asynchronously, like I am able to go to more things. I'm able to like encounter more things and see more work than I was before because like I don't have to like I don't have to go anywhere I can just do it on my computer um and that's really exciting um especially now that I think we've kind of exited the weird crush of like everybody was experiencing a lot of FOMO and like had to like be at everything and was like oh my god I don't know (laughs) when everyone was like oh I don't I don't I don't want to be at anything because it's a horrible pandemic but also there's so Mm -hmm. much happening and I don't want to miss any of it right right well and I think like I um Andrew Hungerford, who I hope we'll have on this show at some point um, and is a lovely human that like I got to meet in Portland when he was a lighting designer for us at Portland Stage, but also runs a wonderful company out in Cincinnati. No theater. Um, K-N-O-W. Um, is he one of the crushes, Todd? He's one of my crushes. Yes. Andrew Hungerford knows that I love all of his work, um, but I've never gotten to see a no show. And I do now because they're all streamed and I can watch them and like. I'm never going to fly out to Cincinnati just to see his shows. I would fly out for other things and then also see shows if that was the case. But like it allows me to see work from my theater peers that I wouldn't get to see, whether that's in Atlanta, out in L.A., without having to be like, I'm going to go and hope that all of the shows that I want to see happen to be running when I go to Chicago or New York or San Francisco. And let's Um, not forget that this translates to tabletop. Mm-hmm. So all of these players that have moved away over the years, like every community's experience, and suddenly they can no longer come to the table, have no excuse. And you can <laughs> finally <laughs> you can finally play with people you haven't gotten to play with in years and and reunite with old characters and new characters. I had a campaign that was on its next to final session, March 13th, Friday the 13th. That was like that was like the Friday. Mm-hmm. Everything went to hell. And so we had like the end of the campaign to wrap up. Uh, We had to do it digitally. So we moved everything to uh, a digital format and players that had played at the beginning of the campaign, the first two sessions, but had to bail because they were moving out of this little dinky town. They I reached out to them in secret and I was like, hey, if we're doing the last session online, come back. And suddenly the, the other players got to reunite with the characters they started the journey on Mm. that because they wouldn't have never gotten a chance otherwise they got to come back and finish the final big battle and and uh reunite and it was really touching really beautiful um to have the whole team there at the beginning and at the end for viewers at home uh percy is clutching his heart um (laughs) filled with emotion it's so wholesome and i really love it um (laughs) I think that's a lovely note for us to end on. James, any final thoughts on virtual theater or virtual tabletop games? I think they had a lot to learn from each other and it's only going to get better from here. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Horneck, and Nick Warvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertaldi. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at 
DMDramaNerds, and on Facebook at Dungeons and Dramanerds. For cast bios, head to our website, DungeonsandDramaNerds.com, and tune in next week as we continue saving 73 JPEGs I desperately need. Hey, it's James again with the Quelmar Realm. That's Quelmar spelt Q-U-E-L-M-A-R. If you're curious about our community of world builders and theater artists, check us out at twitch.tv slash thequelmarrealm. There you can watch videos of past adventures, along with links to our Discord, website, and wiki, where you can then join our community and play or master adventures of your own. We'll have dice ready for you when you get there.